Bob Murphy Show, episode 174. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show and this is the first time I'm recording since the fall of the Republican democracy has ended as we've known it in the United States. Uh, I'm referring, of course, to the events of January 6th, 2021. And it's a trade-off on the one hand because of the lag where I have some interviews and stuff in the queue and I do the alternation. That means when I want to do a solo episode where I would have a chance to talk about current events, there's necessarily a lag. Um, so that's a good thing in the sense that I'm not just shooting my mouth off as news is breaking. But on the other hand, I thought, okay, if I'm going to say anything about what happened on January 6th, I better take it now in this slot of episode 174. So it's not too old by the time you hear this stuff. So here's just some of my thoughts. And what I'm also going to do at the end is go through some of you may have seen the clip from the the guy that was dressed like a Viking that, you know, once people identified him and found some, he's he's been going to a bunch of different rallies and there's some interesting interviews he's given. And so I thought the way I'll end this episode is I'll go through this two minute or so clip from him where at first, like I can understand to the untrained ear, it sounds like he's just a complete lunatic, but I know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> so maybe that makes me a lunatic, but I thought I'll at least explain to you folks what's going on. So this way you can have the, Rosetta Stone to people who have somewhat extreme views. So first of all, this is a pretty simple one. There is this disconnect in rhetoric, and it's going to sound like I'm defending Trump, but I'm, I'm not. I'm just pointing this out, that before, so after, you know, the people stormed the Capitol building and everyone was clutching their pearls and so forth, a lot of Trump's normal critics were saying, the president has ordered an angry mob into the Capitol building to thwart democracy and the will of the people and violate the peaceful transfer of power. This is unconscious. And plenty of Trump's standard defenders were saying, what are you talking about? He didn't order them to go into the thing. You know, just look at what he said to the crowds. And I went and checked this myself. I even clicked on after the fact, there was a Reason article from Jacob Solom saying how Trump's rhetoric is responsible for what happened or something like that. So I was like, okay, I'm open-minded. Let me see, show me. You know, I'm sure Trump didn't say go invade the building. Let me see. And I'm, I kid you not, the worst thing in that Reason article that they had Trump doing was he said to the crowd, you know, that had showed up to protest to stop the steal or whatever you want to say. He had said, okay, we're going to go down there now and we're going to applaud for those senators that are standing up for democracy and for the will of the people and for election integrity. And some of the other ones, well, we're not going to applaud so loud for them. That's what he said. <laughs> he said, we're not going to applaud as loudly for some of those people as we are for the ones who are, you know, doing what we want. And apparently that really means invade the building with guns and, you know, 
take everyone hostage and overturn the election through gunfire, apparently. Okay, so I'm saying Trump's defenders were pointing out, what are you talking about, Pelosi and everybody else who's blaming him and saying he's, you know, thwarted our experiment in democracy and self-government because he refuses. What are you talking about? He didn't tell people to do that. And then the next day when Trump released the recorded video message saying for those people who were breaking the law and entering the Capitol building and, you know, whatever, your lawbreakers, you're going to be dealt with harshly and this, you know, this is violates the tradition of American democracy, blah, blah, blah. And then a lot of Trump's erstwhile supporters said, oh, there he goes, throwing everybody under the bus. He just cares about himself. And so th there's a disconnect there. And for, in some cases, it was literally the same people, right? So I'm not just saying there's a two positions and hypothetically if one person, no, I saw some of the exact same people who had both takes within whatever, 30 hours of each other. So again, to repeat, the issue. They were outraged that anybody would dare suggest that Trump was telling his supporters to invade the Capitol building. And then the next day when Trump disavowed those people who entered the Capitol building and broke the law and said, what are you doing? We got to respect law enforcement. What you did was illegal and unconscionable and you will be dealt with harshly or whatever he said. Some of these exact same people said, oh, I can't believe Trump's thrown his own supporters under the bus, the people that he ordered in there. So which is it, guys? If you're saying by Trump's speech there, he threw his own supporters under the bus, then you're agreeing with Pelosi and AOC and everybody in the New York Times who said that Trump really was ordering his followers and inciting violence and telling them to go in there and storm the building. Maybe that is what you think. That's fine. Okay. But you can't have it both ways is what I'm getting at. So that's just my thought on that. For a while, I was really just baffled because my wife and I had been running errands on January 6th, when all this stuff was going down. And so we didn't get home until that evening. And I was just sort of catching up on stuff. And it's funny, I guess I'm in somewhat of a bubble. I was sort of mystified by why everybody was so shocked, right? Everyone was so horrified about what was happening. And, and this wasn't when the person had been shot, by the way. This, it's not because someone like that, I totally get it. If someone gets shot, whoa, whoa, that's, you know, that's, that's tragic. But I'm saying that the idea of people in the buildings and where like everybody was like, oh my gosh, like they couldn't believe it's the worst day in US history kind of stuff. And I wasn't picking up on that vibe. And so here, let me read to you. This is one of the best performing tweets I've ever had on my Twitter account. Let's see if I can find it. I saw somebody had, so there's this guy, Anang Mittal. I might be butchering his name. And he's got photos of, you know, the Viking guy with the horns on his head at, in the, at the podium. And, uh, and he says, the Senate floor is sacred, one of the last holy places in the United States government. To profane it in this way turns my stomach. In my short career at the Senate, I have never even touched the Senate well, nor been on the dais. Disgusting. Okay, so this guy, and, and I realized, like, oh yeah, I forgot. For a lot of people, the federal government is like, the church of the United States. And so watching people do this would be like if I saw, you know, somebody going in and knocking over crucifixes or something in a church and, or, you know, posing in the in a nativity scene or something. And yeah, that would disgust me and turn my stomach. And by the way, like if people had invaded the Smithsonian and defaced historical artifacts, then I would have been mad too. It's just 
for me, Pelosi's office is not a national landmark. Sorry. So my reaction to that guy's tweet was, I said, the reasons yesterday's events were tragic is that one person was shot and it will be used as an excuse to further erode people's rights. Not because the headquarters of professional liars and war criminals was desecrated. So I got, I got 2.4 thousand hearts on that one. Not too shabby. So because of that, a few people told me that they lost a lot of respect for me. One guy said, you're better than this. And it was funny. <laughs> I had some of my normal, that guy was like a free market economist who obviously has more orthodox views than I do. And some progressives said to him, no, he's not, which, you know, come on, that, that's actually pretty funny. And I actually enjoyed them ripping on me more than him because his was just like, you know, moralizing. But anyway, I think that really does crystallize the difference. Let me just take a minute explaining that. And by the way, just more generally, I've noticed a lot of my economist colleagues who are either working in or near DC or went to school near DC. Again, not a perfect rule, but it tends to be those are the ones who are outraged by what happened on January 6th and they can't believe that some of us aren't losing sleep over that. And, and again, I'm not talking about the woman getting shot and some police officers were injured. I think maybe one died and some other protesters had heart attacks and they couldn't get them medical care because of the crowd. Obviously, I'm not build, downplaying loss of life, I'm, but I'm saying the fact that people were posing for selfies, stealing the lectern, not a podium, mind you, lectern and whatever, that per se doesn't bother me, certainly not more than people looting and burning private businesses do. All right. And so, and so what's this? And I, and I think part of it is that some people, they, they really believe like, oh, we were so close. If we had just gotten the, you know, the GOP freshmen to read our regression analysis and see that on this variable, we had three stars when we ran it through. Do you know how statistically significant this thing was? We were so close to restoring the constitution. And then Trump comes in and ruins it all. And I want to tell you guys, no. That's, I'm not saying don't try to publish peer-reviewed papers to make the case for not raising the minimum wage or something. That's not what I'm saying. Go ahead and do that. Don't just abandon academia. But I'm saying this idea that, oh, everything was, you had, you had Congress right where you wanted them, right? Sort of like in the old Encyclopedia Brown stories, if you guys ever read those, where Encyclopedia would make some observation and then would say, Bugs Meany, trapped in his own lie, quickly returned the stolen property and went home sulking. You know, that bugs me and he go like, oh, I can't argue with the other encyclopedia, you got me. Which I always thought was cute that, that a bully would care what the dorky kid said in terms of his logic. But that's what a lot of these guys who are lecturing me and others, I, I think that's where they're, or that's the vibe they're giving off. They, oh, we have these vaunted democratic institutions and the noble senate and everything. And then Trump comes along and cheapens it all. And I can't... Guys, no. The people in Washington, D.C., largely speaking, you know, I don't think this is true of Thomas Massey, certainly not Ron Paul, but largely speaking, they are professional liars and war criminals. Okay, and I'm not saying that to end the conversation, but I'm saying you can't put that aside. That They don't believe what they're saying. The reasons for their policies are not the ones they're giving publicly. So the point of... Education, for example, which I'm real big on, right? I'm famously against violence. 
Okay, then a lot of people are like, well, how are we going to change anything, Bob, if you don't do anything? And I'm also against voting, all right? And I think, no, just teaching people this is how a free society would work, all right? So I'm all on board with education, but that's to get the public to withdraw their consent, right? So the reason politicians get up and lie professionally, I mean, well, these guys are good at it. They're pros, literally. The reason they lie is because they can't tell their constituents the real reasons for their policies, because if they did, they wouldn't have any support, Okay, so that the fact that the politicians lie shows it's important for the public to believe in what they're doing, what the politicians are doing. Otherwise, they wouldn't bother lying, right? If it really were, in other words, let me put it this way, if it really were the case that ideas don't matter and that whoever has the most guns or who has the tanks or whatever on their side wins and that, you know, there's no point, Bob, in teaching people sound economics because it's all about power. If that were true, then there's no reason that dictators would lie or politicians in general would lie. There's no reason they would care about controlling the news mechanisms. And, you know, they wouldn't, in China, they wouldn't have restrictions on what people could look at on the internet. But they do have all those restrictions. It, it, YouTube and Twitter do kick off people with unconventional views. Why? Because they know full well they have to control the narrative because the people ultimately have the power. There's 300 plus million people in the United States there's not that many people in the ruling class, right? So they have to control the flow of information and that's why they lie, okay? So make sure you keep all that together. But my point is trying to convince congressional staffers who are then gonna run up the flagpole to their boss about whatever, the, the benefits of lowering the capital gains tax rate or something, that that is not what's going to bring freedom back to the United States. Not saying that's all a waste of time. Go ahead and do that just so you can say, you know, just to dot your I's and cross your T's, go ahead, have all the bases covered. But this idea that everything was going swimmingly and then Trump came in with his populism and ruined everything, I just, that's no. Not saying necessarily Trump was a good force. Clearly, if you're a Republican, a career Republican, I can see why right now you're thinking, oh man, we got to dig out of this hole. But again, this idea that the US was fine and we just needed to follow the procedures that our forefathers handed down to us until Trump came in and cheapened it up. That's not, that's not a right read of what was going on. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion for me to once again remind you that if you like what you hear, you like the guests that I bring on and the perspective I offer in the solo episodes, by all means, consider making a contribution. The more such contributions I get, the more episodes I can do per month just as a justification for using my scarce labor hours and this outlet that I love, but yet does not fully pay the bills. And so I can only do it part-time thus far. For details on how you can do that and all the special bonuses, depending on your level of contribution, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Let me just mention, if you've made a qualifying contribution and you're supposed to get let into the Facebook secret group, shh, it's a secret. And it's been more than two weeks since you've made the contribution and I haven't gotten back to you, that means I somehow missed the note in my inbox. And so don't be shy. Please get in touch and just let me know. Uh, make sure that I get everybody in there who's supposed to be in there. Last thing I'll mention is whether you contribute or not, another way you can certainly help is subscribe to me on YouTube. And when you come across an episode that you realize some of your friends might be interested in or, you know, a coworker, and I'm going to be trying to make more episodes that are catering to someone who's not a true believer, as it were, then sharing the episodes with people like that is another great way for me to get the podcast out in front of more people. 
Thanks everybody for your support and let's get back to the episode. All right, what else do I want to talk about? This double standard, this is, it's just so comical. And I'm sure, you know, usually when you accuse people of a double standard, they could reverse it on their critics. And that's often the case. So I, I would say not in my case, and some of the other people bring this up, but yes, it is true. A lot of the right-wing commentariat who are saying right now, oh, wait a minute, you guys didn't condemn the BLM violence in riots, but now you're condemning this, that they also are hypocrites for the mirror image reason, right? So that's true. But nonetheless, I think I'm not a hypocrite in pointing this out. So let me go ahead and point it out. It is just shocking to see the about face that some of these uh, people who are making excuses for months for riots coming from BLM Antifa are now all of a sudden, oh, I can't believe someone would loiter on government property. And why weren't the police more forceful? I literally saw there was a guy, this black filmmaker who, you know, he had a bunch of, I think he had a blue check mark and a bunch of people liked his tweet or whatever. So I'm not just picking on some random guy. And he said something to the effect of, even though I've made three documentaries decrying police brutality, I was hoping for a stronger police response on January 6th or something like that. Okay, so let me just read from, this is a pretty good collection. There's this article in The Federalist. The title, so this is by Tristan Justice. And the title is 28 Times Media and Democrats Excused or Endorsed Violence Committed by Left-Wing Activists. All right, so don't worry, I'm not going to read all 28, but let me just give you some of the good ones. So, of course, when people, you know, a, lot, a standard talking point would be to say, you can just imagine if the left did this in D.C., what would happen? And so people were showing D.C. was literally on fire over the summer. And, you know, they, they, they weren't condemning the violence there. Kamala Harris back in June 1st, 2020, says, if has a tweet, if you're able to chip in now to the Minnesota Freedom Fund to help post bail for those protesting on the ground in Minnesota. Okay, so people who were arrested protesting back then, she wants, she's raising bail money for them. Chris Cuomo on CNN says, please show me where it says protesters are supposed to be polite and peaceful. <laughs> right, talking about the George Floyd protests. Let's see, uh, a hilarious one is there's a picture of a CNN thing where it shows the, the correspondence on the ground. There's literally stuff on fire behind him in the blurb that CNN has, you know, at the bottom of the screen says, fiery but mostly peaceful protests after police shooting. <laughs> I mean, it literally looks like a joke that would come out from the Babylon Bee or something. Not the Onion because the Onion wouldn't make fun of left-wingers, right? And it, it actually looks like a parody. And, and people at the time were having to say, we're not making this up. This isn't Photoshop. This was literally on the TV here on CNN. Showing, you know, again, a correspondent. If you haven't seen it, it's hilarious. Of course, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 174 to uh, see the links to all this stuff in case some of this you haven't seen. It's, it's hilarious. That literally a guy correspondent with fire behind him, buildings and stuff, cars on fire. And the thing says, fiery, but mostly peaceful protests after police shooting. Let's see. So this lady, Hannah Jones, the, you know, the author, or Nicole Hannah Jones, the author of the 1619 Project, or the architect of that thing, she was giving a talk on CBS, an interview on CBS. I think, I'm not sure what the date of this was. I think it's probably the summer. And uh, she said, destroying property, which can be replaced, is not violence. And then the anchor says, it's a great point that you make, Nicole. CBS's Vladimir Dothier's replied. 
Okay, so again, since to my not, well, I guess one of the police officers died. Okay, so I don't know what the circumstances were there, but a lot of, you know, it was equating going into a government building was considered violence by the left. But this lady was saying, no, that's not violence when it was BLM types doing it. Let's see, okay. So Don Lemon talking about with footage of the riots in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, this is back in, in May, said, our country was started because the Boston Tea Party, rioting. So do not get it twisted and think this is something that has never happened before and this is so terrible and these savages and all of that. This is how this country was started, all right? So I'm pretty sure Don Lemon did not then also, a couple days ago, come out and defend the people storming the Capitol building by saying, well, I mean, it's Boston Tea Party. This is basically how this country was founded. So let's not call them savages or thugs. Um, CNN's Chris Saliza complained that why, why is Trump calling this stuff the major cities riots? In other words, he's, he's saying, you know, what what's happening over the summer in those cities. What weren't riots? Come on. Let's see. Uh, there's a report from somebody saying, this was in late May of 2020, said this, this guy with the blue check mark, I think he works for NBC News, saying, this will guide our reporting in Minnesota. Quote, while the situation on the ground in Minneapolis is fluid and there has been violence, it is most accurate this time to describe what is happening there as protests, not riots. Right? And again, pretty sure people aren't following that rule when it comes to reporting on what happened just recently here in D.C. Okay, let me... I don't want to get bogged down too much in this stuff. Okay, Nancy Pelosi was asked. There was a, a mob that took down a statue of Christopher Columbus in Baltimore on June 2020, and people asked Pelosi what she thought about it. Um, so so a, a journalist actually asked the question and said to, of, to her, removing the Columbus statue in Baltimore, shouldn't that be done by a commission or the city council, not a mob in the middle of the night throwing it into a harbor? And Pelosi said, people will do what they do. <laughs> so... Again, it's this, uh, our vaunted tradition of a peaceful disposition of the public will and so forth. Not what Nancy Pelosi thought back in, I guess that would, that clip was from July 9th, 2020. Okay, uh, so here's a good, a good one. Um, somebody caught this Vox thing. So this guy, German Lopez, a Vox author back in, this looks like September 20, yeah, September 2016. The headline is, Riots are destructive, dangerous, and scary, but can lead to serious social reforms. And then the subheadline is, To prevent more violent uprisings and protests, we need to take their causes seriously. Then that same author, on January 6, 2021, has a Vox article, the main title is, Every person who forced their way into the Capitol should be arrested. And then the subtitle is, Lock them all up. Right? Again, that doesn't sound exactly like the same standard being applied. Here, I'll just read a couple more, folks. From the New York Times, from July of 2020, the New York Times has a, the title, you know, the headline is, Peaceful Protesters with, quote, Room for Rage Sympathize with Aggressive Tactics. And then the sub, you know, heading is, A forceful campaign by federal law enforcement in Portland, Oregon has prompted an escalation in tactics from some protesters, while others wonder whether they are losing their focus. And someone's highlighting something from the article here saying, yet the nightly assault on the federal courthouse, right, so a nightly assault on a federal courthouse going on in Portland, has been part of a much wider peaceful resistance. 
Right? So again, they wanted to be, be clear to make sure you didn't just think this was a mob attacking a federal courthouse. They're making it's part of a much larger peaceful resistance. And then the New York Times, the front page on January 7th, big headline, Trump incites mob, rampage in capital, forces evacuations. It's part of his legacy, Republican says. Da, da, da. Again, you kind of detect somewhat of a double standard. And then let me just go ahead and get to the, the f- best one of all. So AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this is what she said just in December 2020. <laughs> so, right? so this wasn't eons ago. This is just a few weeks ago in the beginning of December 2020. And here's uh, a tweet from AOC. The whole point of protesting is to make people uncomfortable. Activists take that discomfort with the status quo and advocate for concrete policy changes. Popular support often starts small and grows. To folks who complain that protest demands make others uncomfortable, dot, 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 that's the point. Okay, and they don't have it in this particular article I'm reading, but she went on in this tweet thread to say things like, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right in front of me, but I know I saw this, saying things like, you know, it's it's rich when people say there are legitimate means of, of protest or whatever, rather than taking it to the streets or to overturn, pro- or, you know, to violate property rights or whatever. And she's saying, because we've tried all, you know, these activists have tried all those other techniques and they haven't been taken seriously. They're not being heard. And so when all these other methods are exhausted, they're not heard, they have no choice but to, you know, do these things that are then labeled as disqualifying, right? So you can see the irony of her saying that when the Trump people who are saying, well, the election was stolen and we tried doing all this other stuff and we kept getting stymied. And so we have no choice, right? Riding is the language of the unheard. Okay, so I'll stop there, but you get the point. And let me just mention, because I saw this going around, the, the famous, you know, whataboutism. People, so if you, if you say any of this stuff, the anti-Trump people will say, oh, that's whataboutism, and then move on, like they just blew you up. So where that term comes from, at least as far back as I've seen it traced, is like in the 1960s, I think, maybe the 70s, when the UN would object to the Soviet Union doing something. The representatives of the Soviet Union and whoever their allies were would object and say, well, what about, you know, the U.S. and Israel, what they're doing over in the Middle East? That kind of stuff. Or, you know, what about what the U.S. is doing over here? Meaning, you know, you're criticizing us for this, but you're turning a blind eye to what the U.S. is doing. So we don't take you seriously. And so that's now become the catchphrase that, in other words, when your side's caught doing something naughty, if you just bring up, oh, well, what about this? So like, you know, let, let's say some Republican president got caught having sexual relations with an intern and then people were freak, freaking out about it. You can imagine a bunch of the standard, you know, defense would be, what about Bill Clinton? And, and so that, like that would be a way just to print, deflect criticism. Okay. And so, yes, if what you're doing is saying we're never going to apologize or stop doing something wrong because there exists someone else in human history who did the same thing, then that's a bogus argument. That's, that's goofy. You're just deflecting it and avoiding responsibility for your own wrong actions. However, I think it's entirely appropriate if a hypocrite comes up and condemns you for doing what he himself did or if someone who made excuses for something when it was their side doing it now turns around and accuses you of doing it, Yes, it's entirely appropriate to say, no, you're a hypocrite. What are you talking about? I'm not listening to you. So again, it doesn't mean you're right in what you're doing, but it means you don't have to sit there and be lectured to 
by someone who has a double standard and only applies that principle when it suits them, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Or I mean, imagine, you know, Jesus saying, you hypocrite, you're complaining about the speck in your brother's eye. Why don't you first clean out the moat in your own eye? Imagine if the Pharisee or whoever he was talking to said, oh, that's whataboutism, Jesus. Don't deflect from the fact that my brother has a speck in his eye. Let's focus on that. Let's not say, what about the moat in my eye? That's whataboutism. If that's whataboutism, then that's a good thing. Okay. My attempt at whataboutism was I mentioned, I went and dug up over the summer, there were activists who literally set up a guillotine outside of Jeff Bezos' house demanding higher wages for Amazon employees. And that was reported. And there wasn't a bunch of people fainting, like, oh my gosh, don't you guys know how bad political violence is? Don't you know how many people died in the French Revolution? You're actually reminding us and, and implicitly threatening Bezos that you're going to chop his head off if he doesn't give in to your political demand? Nobody said that. Oh, oh yay. Fight for 15. These people are so compassionate. Look how much they love workers. That was the reaction. So this idea that Phil from All That Remains, he had a good one. He, he pointed out that, I think I'm getting this right. A lot of the people who after, you know, the events on January 6th were decrying political violence were the same people that were made the hashtag punch a Nazi popular. I don't know if you guys remember that. Remember someone came up and Richard Spencer's given a, you know, a quick YouTube thing or something on the street corner. Some guy walks up and just punches him in the face just out of nowhere. And so then the hashtag punch a Nazi be, was trending and everyone thought it was hilarious. Like, ha look at that. Somebody who disagrees with me and I hate their, I hate their views. I want you to just go punch them. Why not? And so, no, you can't laugh at that and then now say, oh, political violence. I can't believe someone would actually. Another example, this you know, idea that storming the Capitol is completely reprehensible and only a fascist monster could possibly endorse that. Back in September of 2018, all these women's groups took over the Capitol, right? I have an article here from the Washington Post. I'll link to it again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 174. 128 arrested after anti-Kavanaugh protest on Capitol Hill. And there's a tweet from somebody from a Miriam Khan saying, Kavanaugh protesters have taken over the Russell Rotunda, photo by ABC photographer Brad Fulton. And it shows, you know, all these people inside the rotunda. And they, they, the story goes on to say how they went in and they went up to the office of Senator Susan Collins. And then they went over to Senator Jeff Flake's office. Then they moved to the rotunda of the Russell Senate office building. All right. So what were they doing? Were they not trying to influence the Senate confirmation hearings by physically invading a Capitol building? Right. So this idea that, oh, no, you could never possibly try to change the functions of government or how people rule or vote in a certain thing by intimidation and, and protest, that's, this is nothing qualitatively new, all right? Obviously, yes, they're not literally the same thing. There's differences. But I think the significant difference is that they were for causes people liked back then. When it was to make people not confirm Kavanaugh, I would say on the basis of baseless charges of sexual harassment and assault, that's totally cool. We believe survivors. But when it comes to the testimony of people, election workers who say, oh, yeah, I saw some real fishy stuff and I think votes were taken. We're not supposed to believe the survivors of the election steal. I believe in them, even though some of them were women. All right. That's just baseless claims. And I don't care what you believe. You don't get to invade the Capitol building and try to change the outcome of a democratic transfer of power. 
That's shocking. Who would think of that? Only fascists. Also, <laughs> my wife sent me this when she saw someone post it. So you may remember that. So this is an article that ran in the Capitol Weekly, but this is from California. So the Capitol, that's C-O-A-P-I-T-O-L, Capitol Weekly. This was back in 2017. I'll just read a little bit of the article. It's largely forgotten now, but 50 years ago, it created a national sensation. It even caused the National Rifle Association and Ronald Reagan to back a gun control bill authored by a Republican. Today is the 50th anniversary of the May 2nd, 1967 invasion, in quotation marks, of the state capitol by two dozen gun-toting Black Panthers. Carrying rifles, pistols, and shotguns and wearing dark glasses, leather jackets, and berets, they marched up the front steps into the capitol to demonstrate their opposition to an anti-gun bill. Da, 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 da. Capital is invaded, blared the huge front page headline in the May 2nd Sacramento Bee. When they arrived, Ronald Reagan, then near the beginning of his eight years as governor, was on the Capitol lawn hosting a gathering of eighth graders. As the armed and fearsome-looking Panthers arrived, Reagan was hustled inside. The visitors walked into the building and headed for the assembly chamber on the second floor, where they intended to read aloud executive mandate number one, a statement in opposition to the Mulford bill. That was the gun control bill. They were not allowed to enter the chamber, so they went outside and read the statement on the front lawn. Okay, so yes, it's not the exact same thing. They were stopped at one point, but they weren't all gunned down. And so I'm, so I'm wondering how that this was in the 60s, armed Black Panthers marched into the Capitol building of the state of California, were trying to read a bill, you know, their own manifesto or something, and then they were turned back, and so they went on the front lawn and read it, but they weren't all just gunned down on the spot, even though the reaction to what happened just a few days ago by a lot of commentators is, oh, imagine if black people tried to do what these white supremacists just did, they would have all been shot down. And so, you know, maybe part of what's going on is the difference is now police don't just gun you down when you're armed. You know, that's one lesson people are saying. I don't know, lots of different variables. And the other thing too is it's weird that people are saying, oh, black people would have been shot when the one white woman was shot and killed. All right, so there you go. There's some context to take into account when you are being told that this is an unprecedented thing done by white supremacist fascists to stop the peaceful transfer of power and no leftist in his right mind would ever support political violence or condone breaking the law in order to achieve a political objective. That's not exactly how I read history. Okay, so what I want to do in the balance of this essay, this episode, is you may have seen this. So the guy who's wearing like this Viking horn getup, people figured out who he was, and he is an actor. Now, does that mean he doesn't believe the stuff he's saying? I mean, actors are people too, right? <laughs> is it, wouldn't it be funny if are we saying that all the left-wing Hollywood actors and actresses that spout views on, you know, they're really not environmentalists, they really don't care. Maybe, that's that's possible too. They could be, that could all be an act too. But in any event, whether this guy believes this stuff or he's just creating a character, in any event, people are going around, because he, he's shown up at previous rallies and things, and the persona he's putting out there, I'll put it that way, it's not Antifa, okay? So he's not a conventional Trump Republican either, but it's also you can't just dismiss him as some agitator who was trying to discredit Trump, all right? He's extremely red-pilled, if you want to say that. And he has, ex he, you call him a conspiracy theorist. But let me just, I'm going to play a little clip of and explain what he's 
talking about. Because right? I know to some people, many of you, in fact, they'll probably sound like he's a raving lunatic and I know exactly what he's referring to and maybe that'll help if I just go through some of this stuff. Um, a, a quick word about characters. Okay, so the clip I'm going to play for you, he says some out there things, but then there's another clip going around where he says really out there things about how he sees interdimensional beings and has a third eye and stuff like that. And it reminds me of, I had watched a documentary, I think it was called Wake Up Call. I'll, I'll go, I'll link it to the show notes page. I'll, I'll get the right one, make sure I got the right one that I, I saw many years ago, someone sent to me. And what I thought was interesting about this was there was one guy in there and I grabbed clips of him and I put it on my website. And I said, this guy in particular in this documentary wake up call, check it out folks, because in terms of the combination of very outlandish, implausible claims, but yet that he backs them up very reasonably and like, you know, making a case for it. I've never seen such a guy that has both elements like this, like this guy. And it was David Icke. And so then somebody, I think it was Josiah Neely, but I'm not sure, who in the comments of my blog said, oh, okay, Bob, would you say that this is pretty reasonable and defensible too? And he posted clips of David Icke talking about seeing shape-shifting lizard people, okay? And which I hadn't seen to that point. The only thing I knew of him was the claims he was making about like the Bilderberg group and stuff in, in the documentary I had seen. I didn't see the stuff. So I was like, oh, geez. So similar thing with this guy that what I'm going to do now is try to show you Hey, even though he sounds kind of out there with some of these claims, let's really think about it. He's not as nuts as he sounds. And it would be easy then for someone to say, oh, really, Bob? And then give me some of these other clips where he's saying stuff that really does sound nutty. And so let me just take a minute talking about that phenomenon because it actually occurred to me with, this, with that David Icke guy, if you're not familiar with him, he's one of the leading conspiracy theorists, you know, thinks that the Council on Foreign Relations, Bilderberg Group and stuff, secret societies are running the world and that the more the it's not just that they're humans, that there's shape-shifting interdimensional lizard beings. Da, 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 da. And so it occurred to me at one point, but, but like I said, he's, you know, he's, he, he dresses nicely and he can, you know, he has an accent. He sounds very sophisticated. And so it occurred to me at one point years ago, why does David like talk about the lizard people stuff? Because that discredits him, right? Like he could just keep his mouth shut about that. The other stuff would gain more currency. And then so I was running through various theories. So one is, well, he believes the lizard people stuff and, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to hold back the truth. He's going to let it, let it all out there, not censor himself. So that's one thing. Another possibility is self-preservation, right? Because the other stuff he talks about is so explosive that another standard critique you could say of him that I have seen some people bring up is to say, hey, David Icke, if these conspiracies that you were talking about were true, Right. If they, you know, if they really did shoot JFK and there's this international cabal of central bankers and oil company executives and major media and, da, 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 and they run the world and da, 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 if all that's true and all these things are false flags, 9-11 was an incident, then why aren't you dead? Right. That's a that's a standard obvious objection to that perspective. If if the world is as sinister, is made up of sinister people as you say, and they have all this unchecked power and there's all these, you know, black ops sites and whatever, and they have this secret hidden government behind the scenes and whatever. There's, it's all complete lawlessness and the public is being duped by these puppets that they trot out there. If that's all true, David Icke, and you have a following of millions of people who love your stuff, why aren't you dead? 
Why wouldn't they just take you out? So that's that's it. So notice how the two kind of go hand in hand, right? One way you would protect yourself is to make yourself a joke and to say, oh yeah, I do all this. And I talk about shape-shifting lizard people. So really, am I that much of a threat? And so that would be a way for you to be able to get out your stuff and for most of your fans to say, oh yeah, I totally like his stuff about the central banks and the military industrial, those shape-shifting lizard stuff. I'm not, you know, I don't know why he does that. I don't get on board with that stuff, right? So that that's one way you could do it. Another obvious explanation is it gets you out there, right? That's the reason I'm talking about David Icke and him talking about central banks rather than somebody else who might make largely the same points about central banks and the military industrial complex, but yet doesn't talk about shape-shifting lizards is we don't know who the other person is because he's not famous the way David Icke is. Okay, so there's that element. And so this guy that I'm about to talk about, the, uh, the Viking, let me see. I knew his name and now it's escaping me. Let me see if I can find it. Jake Angeli, sorry. So Jake and then A-N-G-E-L-I. So Jake Angeli, I think. And he, he's known as the QAnon shaman. That's the thing. People asked him, like, are you a Trump supporter or whatever? And he said, I'm a shaman. So there you go. Okay, so that guy, likewise, you could say of him, no, he's, if you, when you know, I play the clip for you, you'll see. He's, he doesn't sound, you know, his voice isn't flying all over the place. He doesn't sound like a raving lunatic. It's just when you see him and how he's dressed, you're like, well, wait a minute. This doesn't seem to be like a guy who's playing with a full deck. Doesn't he know he could get his message up? And he realized, no, that's not true. You, he wouldn't get his message out to more people if he dressed more respectably. The only reason we're talking about him is because he was dressed as a Viking and stormed the Capitol and went up there on the Senate floor. That's why we're even considering him and going and digging up interviews he's given at other places. And why at those other rallies did they interview him? Probably because he was dressed like a Viking. Okay, so, you know, it's not my tactic, <laughs> as you can tell, but that shouldn't disqualify someone is what I'm getting at, right? That in this day and age, someone's got a message to get out and they do crazy stuff like that. That does not mean, come on, we can't take him his message seriously because would a person in his right mind talk like that? Well... It is kind of a nutty world at this point. So that in and of itself doesn't make it wrong. Okay, so let me go ahead and play this stuff. It should go without saying, but I'll say anyway, I am not endorsing what he says in this interview. My point though is it's not as patently absurd as the people are making it to be. So what I did, I thought this was pretty funny. I'm, I'm a fan of my own comedy. Is I posted so this clip is a minute and forty four seconds. So I and it's from this guy investment Hulk saying, "This is what you were all afraid of." So he's mocking this guy, right? Saying, "I can't believe this is the guy that everyone in the Senate building was cowering from as he invaded." Look at what a nut job he is. So I listened to it, expecting to chuckle, and then I was like, "Wait a minute, this guy's not completely nutty." Like I understand where he's coming from, and so then I retweeted this video and said, okay, instead of these political quizzes that I think are crude, from now on, if I want to know where somebody's coming from politically, I'm just going to show them this clip and say, at what timestamp do you stop agreeing with the Viking guy? And I said, my number's higher than many of you think. All right. So, haha. And so in the comments, a lot of people were like doing crying, laughing faces, like this guy's an idiot. And so my point in going through this is partly just education, just so you know what the heck is he, what's he alluding to, but also to say, I, the world right now is insane. The stuff that's considered normal and legitimate is crazy, okay? You know, we've got drag queen story or at public libraries, 
the president of the United States, the Obama administration, had a secret kill list. And then on the front page of the New York Times, nobody cared. All right, so this, this is a crazy world we're in right now. And the idea that just some of the stuff this guy talks about makes him, oh, we can't take this seriously because as I'm saying, no, this, what this guy is saying, yeah, there's some weird stuff in here, but I'm going to explain to you and show you what he's, what he's alluding to. Okay. All over the globe, countries are occupied by central banking institutions that loan the government money at interest. And this enables them to own all the other socioeconomic and geopolitical gears in the country. Okay? And then what they do is they use their billions or trillions of dollars to create a bunch of deep underground bases where they have all this like t highly top secret technology going on. Okay? Okay. So that was the part, the central banking thing. I don't think I need to justify it to you folks that. You know, you presumably know how that's how central banks work. And the idea that the government doesn't have stuff they spend money on that's not on the books. I mean, to me, that's so naive if you believe that, that I, I don't know what to tell you. Okay. So the exact contents of their secret spending or the, the items, we could maybe not go as far as this guy's going to go with it as I continue to play the clip in a minute. But I saw some people basically, you know, in other words, saying, Oh, yeah, he's right about central banks, but underground bases, come on. And I want to say, really? You're okay with the fact that there's central banks around the world and they fund all kinds of secret stuff, but the idea that the government might build a base underground you think is crazy? And so let me just explain to you guys. It's on record. The government has been building underground bunkers for decades. This isn't a secret. All right, so here, I found this is at the history.com site. This is from August 22nd, 2018. Or no, sorry. The original ran in June of 2017 and they updated it in August of 2018. So the title is Inside the Government's Top Secret Doomsday Hideouts. The author is Christopher Klein. As the Cold War heated up in the 1950s, the U.S. government devised top secret plans to ensure its survival if the Soviet Union launched nuclear tech. These continuity of government preparations, including building dozens of underground bunkers and arranging to move high-ranking government officials out of harm's way. Da -da 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 -da, okay. So some of this stuff is above ground, but some of them were underground. I'm trying to find a good one. I'm just scrolling through this article here. Let's see. Okay. Okay, the most famous one is one at Shane Mountain uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Unlike most of the other doomsday bunkers constructed during the Cold War, no secrecy surrounded the underground fortress built for the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. A public groundbreaking was even staged in 1961. Two tons of dynamite a day were needed to build a five-acre complex that contains reservoirs of water and fuel and chambers capable of housing three-story buildings. The facility became fully operational in early 1967, but has since been redesignated as an alternate command center. And then there's one in Mount Pony in Culpeper, Virginia. Built into a hillside 75 miles south of Washington, D.C., the Doomsday Bunker constructed for the chairman, board of directors, and staff of the Federal Reserve System included an enormous vault that held more than $4 billion in currency, enough to replenish the currency east of the Mississippi River and maintain the money supply for two years it would take for the Bureau of Printing and Engraving to resume operations. All right. And so this is a whole article on secret facilities, some of which were underground, that the U.S. government built so that in case the U.S. got hit by a Soviet first strike, you know, they could evacuate key personnel to ensure that the government doesn't get decapitated and that, you know, the government can still function. This was, I, of course, you may recognize the movie Dr. Strangelove talks about this at the end there. You know, they're talking about, we cannot have an underground bunker shaft or, or whatever they call it. So 
the idea that the U.S. government maintains a network of underground bases, that's not at all a stretch, right? Like you get 90% of that guy's claim from officially confirmed, you know, sources, the government admitting what it did. So if you say, oh, wait, are you doing secret research and stuff in there? Well, they might say no, okay, but if you ask what's going on at Area 51 or whatever, so it's, you know the government does classified stuff, right? There's plenty of classified information. You know they're doing R&D on advanced weapon systems, right? Like they would admit as much. So, so far, just the fact that this guy's saying, oh, the government's doing stuff underground. Yes, they admit they are, right? So you can't tune him out and say, oh, come on, that's pretty implausible, right? So you gotta be with him so far. All right, let's go back to the clip. They are like figuring out how to do things like create infinite energy or do things like anti-gravity technology or inertia propulsion. They're learning how to do things like uh, cloning and all sorts of crazy stuff, okay? Okay, so there, that's where I think a lot of the people like said, okay, you lost me there, buddy. So here, I'm not saying they've completed that stuff, but they certainly are doing research on all those things, all right? So this guy is making it sound like they either have it already or they're about to turn the corner or whatever. So I'm not talking about where they might be with those things, but, you know, go watch documentaries on Tesla. This is standard stuff that people are saying there is energy available alternate sources and that, you know, major oil companies and whatever cleaned it out or quashed it so that they could maintain their monopoly, right? So that's the kind of thing he's referring to, saying that Tesla was one who discovered all these ways of tapping into the energy that's all around us. And again, there's, with all the stuff, there's varying degrees of plausibility and whatever to the, to the people, you know, some would just say, okay, well, we're doing experiments to, to test this stuff and it's, unproven and other people are like, oh yeah, yeah, this was all discovered back then. And for 50 years, they've been burying it, you know? Okay. The anti-gravity stuff, let's spend a minute on that. What he's referring to, if you have never heard of this guy, there's this guy, Bob Lazar. And I'll put at least, a. he was on Joe Rogan. He's been, there's actually better ones that I've seen him on where, you know, like the, the, they get more into the science of it. And he claims that he was working, he might've been a contractor or something. And he was in area 51 and and saw certain, you know, area and saw spacecraft and that he saw this machine that ran on what he said was element 115. And by the way, the thing that, you know, those who are saying maybe this guy Lazar is not completely either pathological liar or nut job is he was talking about element 115 before it was officially discovered. All right, and so, you know, he could have just made that up and gotten lucky, but in, in any event, that's part of the of the lore surrounding this guy and for the people that say maybe he's not making this stuff up. And his point was that the way this technology worked to power this alien spacecraft was it could manipulate gravitational force. Okay, so in you know, normal propulsions, like it can eject material out of the back of the rocket And so then that pushes the rest of the, you know, thing forward and there's a conservation of momentum. So, you know, stuff shooting out the back pushes the other stuff forward. You could have using, you know, electromagnetism, certain trains and things run like that. And so this was supposed to use the gravitational force. So if you could somehow, you know, so, so the way he described it, he said there was this, I think it was like a sphere and the guy told him, try to touch it. And as he pushed his hands towards it, like it just got harder and harder to get closer until eventually he couldn't go further. And so he was saying it was anti-gravity, all right? 
Now, am I saying that's true? No, I'm not saying that. What I am going to say, though, is for the people who believe in that, they're not just clinically insane, okay? There are Navy pilots. And this, let's see, so I'll read here from the New York Times. Our source was the New York Times. This is an article from May 26, 2019. And the title of the headline is, wow, what is that? Navy pilots report unexplained flying objects. Okay, and so here I'll just read a little bit from this. The strange objects, one of them like a spinning top moving against the wind, appeared almost daily from the summer of 2014 to March 2015, high in the skies over the East Coast. Navy pilots reported to their superiors that the objects had no visible engine or infrared exhaust plumes, but that they could reach 30,000 feet in hypersonic speeds. These things would be out there all day, said Lieutenant Ryan Graves, an FA-18 Super Hornet pilot who has been with the Navy for 10 years and who reported his sightings at the Pentagon and Congress. Keeping an aircraft in the air requires a significant amount of energy. With the speeds we observe, 12 hours in the air is 11 hours longer than we'd expect. In late 2014, a Super Hornet pilot had a near collision with one of the objects and an official mishap report was filed. Some of the incidents were videotaped, including one taken by a plane's camera in early 2015 that shows an object zooming over the ocean waves as pilots question what they were watching. Wow, what is that, man? One exclaims, look at it fly. No one in the Defense Department is saying that the objects were extraterrestrial, and experts emphasize that earthly explanations can generally be found for such incidents. Da -da 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 -da. Okay. And they've changed, you know how it used to be UFO, unidentified flying objects? They've changed the classification. The military now refers to them as unexplained aerial phenomena, or A, or sorry, UAPs. And I think that's partly because of the stigma of UFO, right? That a lot of these pilots, they're saying they were either told by their superiors not to report it or they themselves just picked up on the, you know, if you know it's good for your career, don't go around saying you saw a UFO because that just sounds mm, cuckoo, cuckoo. And so by changing it to UAP, you can go ahead and file the report, right? Because <laughs> you're thinking from the Navy's point of view, if their pilots are seeing stuff out there, like they want them to report that. We, we need to know that. I mean, for all we know, it could be like a drone from China or something. Russian military may have invented something. Who knows? And so if the pilots are afraid to talk about this stuff because they don't want to be labeled as nut jobs by saying, I saw a UFO on the last mission, that's part of what's going on. Okay, so, and I've seen interviews with these guys, or at least one of them. And what he's describing and saying, it's not just that, oh, wow, these objects go faster than our planes can, or they stay in the air longer than ours would be able to with those speeds. They're saying the way they like turn on a dime and like just they'll be and then boom, they'll just drop altitude real fast and then stop and then move around. And so that's why people who see that kind of testimony from these Navy pilots and then hear Bob Lazar talking about anti-gravity propulsion systems, that's why they're saying, oh, that's what that is. That that would explain it, in other words. That if, if the way your ship moved around was by, you know, either amplifying or negating the gravitational force, then that would explain the way, you know, what these pilots are seeing. Because the pilots are saying normal propulsion doesn't work like that, or at least anything the humans have built. Okay, so am I endorsing all that and saying the aliens are out there? I'm not saying that. I am explaining to you what the Viking guy is talking about when he says the government's working on anti-gravity. He's not just making that up. There's a paper trail of this stuff, all right? Let me just also say, it's funny. For a lot of people, you, you mentioned the word alien and they're just like, oh, cuckoo. In science, there's this thing called the Fermi paradox named after Enrico Fermi, who did a back of the envelope calculation, you know, decades ago saying, well, this is how 
many galaxies we think there are in the universe. This is how many stars per galaxy. So this is, and this is how many planets that should be able to, you know, host life per star, blah, blah, blah. You multiply them all together. This is the time we, we think it takes for life to evolve. And, you, you know, you come up with whatever numbers you plug in there, you come up with there should be lots of intelligent species out there. Where are they? Right? So that's the paradox. And so it's funny how on the one hand, you've got this puzzle where scientists and other philosophers are scratching their heads saying, where are all the aliens that the universe should be teeming with all these aliens according to a lot of the standard theories of the origin of life and whatever. And we've got, you know, the SETI program, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence with, you know, radio telescopes looking in the sky or sending out messages, you know, to show aliens we know prime numbers and stuff like that with all this stuff. And then yet, even though scientists are like, there really should be tons of aliens. Where are they? And then someone says, oh, wait, the, the government has found remnants of an alien. And oh, come on. We never know aliens don't exist. It's just, it's kind of funny to me, right, that you have that dichotomy. By the way, as some of you may know, I didn't want to confuse people. To me, the Fermi paradox and all that, that goes hand in hand with the intelligent design stuff that I actually think, no, when you look at what's required for the emergence of intelligent life, it's fantastically implausible. The stuff that would have to, it would require, oh, a miracle for life to have emerged the way scientists say it did on Earth without, you know, the intervention of an intelligent creator. And that's why I think that, no, there, if you have an open mind, you would say that God did create life on Earth. Okay, so I'm not endorsing the Fermi paradox. My point is, though, that is a standard thing. Lots of scientists believe that with our current understanding of how things work, there should be tons of alien civilizations out there. And yet, where the heck are they? And then someone says, oh, I think the U.S. military has a spacecraft that, from aliens visiting us and trying to keep a low profile. And that's why we don't know where the aliens are because they're trying to keep it on the down low. And, oh, everybody knows aliens are stupid. That's <laughs> just weird to me. Okay, well, now that I've discredited myself as much as possible, why don't we wrap things up there? Keep in mind or keep your ears open. There's going to be plenty more stuff coming out of people with views similar to those of the Viking guy. For all we know, the Viking guy may be in store for a national platform or a global platform because he has linked together lots of different items. And as you heard him, he, he doesn't sound like a raving lunatic. In other words, his manner and the way he speaks. I'm not saying the content. Um, so keep your eye out for him and people like him because you're only going to see a lot more of that as the years pass. Thanks for your attention, folks. I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.